And if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. If you're following along in the Bible in the pew rack in front of you, that's page 64 in your Bible on the pews there. And then also, when you found Exodus 20, maybe you could take a little piece of scrap paper or your ribbon and put it there. And then I want you to turn uh, to Hebrews chapter 10. Okay, we've got three passages, so a little Bible drill this morning. Hebrews 10 is on page 1066 in the Bible in the pew rack in front of you. And then finally, we are going to begin this morning reading Psalm 40. Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, and that is on page 493. So again, if you're using the pew Bible, page 64, page 1066, and page 493, We're looking at Exodus 20, Hebrews 10, and Psalm 40. All right, while you're on your Bible drill mission, I want to say a few brief words of introduction this morning. First of all, um, I've asked you to find the passage in Psalms and in Hebrews because that's where we're going to begin and end this morning. We're going to read Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, and we're going to end in Hebrews chapter 10. They, those psalms, the psalm and the Hebrews, are part of what's going to help us understand the message today as a uniquely Christian message. In other words, our study in the book of Exodus points us somewhere, and that is to Jesus Christ. This is not the kind of message that you could go and hear in a Jewish synagogue. That's what's the difference today. Secondly, the passage in Exodus today is a lengthy one. We are going to tackle 41 verses from the book of Exodus. So instead of having you stand to read for almost 10 minutes, I decided we'd stand and read Psalm 40, and then I will intersperse Exodus 20, etc., as we are going through today. So hopefully by now you've found Psalm 40 and verse 6, and if you have, I invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word. I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible. Psalm 40 and verse 6. You do not delight in sacrifice and offering. You open my ears to listen. The footnote there in the CSB says literally, you hollow out ears for me. You do not ask for a whole burnt offering or a sin offering. Then I said, see, I have come. In the scroll, it is written about me. I delight to do your will, my God, and your instruction is deep within me. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray that you would open our eyes that we might see wonderful sights from your law. Lord, open our ears that we would hear your Holy Spirit speaking today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. If you want to turn back to Exodus 20, that's where we're going to be for a little while. I have heard a lot of sermons on the Ten Commandments. In Sunday school, I've studied about Moses, the basket being placed in the river, the plagues, the parting of the Red Sea. I have never heard anyone preach a passage or teach a Sunday school lesson from the book of Exodus after verse 21 of chapter 20, with two notable exceptions. Exodus 32 and the golden calf incident, and Exodus 33, where Moses says to God, will you please show me your glory? Other than that, nothing, zilch, Zero. Nada. And you're probably thinking to yourself, you know what? Neither have I. Perhaps there's a good reason, Pastor Jason. (laughs) Maybe. I only have two things to say to you if you're concerned by the prospects of 15 weeks this fall in the book of Exodus covering uncharted territory or at least the kind of territory reserved for the exceptionally brave individuals who are ferociously plowing along in their Bible-reading plans. First, 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture 
all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And secondly, well, there are just 40 weeks until we're doing summer in the Psalms all over again. So at least there's that. Actually, I am quite excited about today's message, where we pick up in Exodus chapter 20, just after the giving of the Ten Commandments. In four messages, we're going to do a little mini-series called The Book of the Covenant. This is uh, what happens from Exodus 20:22 through the end of chapter 23. The name, Book of the Covenant, is actually found in Scripture in chapter 24 and verse 7 of Exodus. During the covenant ratification ceremony, we read, Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, Moses did. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. That's where the name, the book of the covenant, comes from. And to summarize these chapters, just a brief summary, God gave Moses additional laws to help his people understand and apply the Ten Commandments in their own social, historical, and redemptive setting. Okay, I'll say that again. God gave Moses these additional laws in the Book of the Covenant to help his people understand and apply the Ten Commandments in their own social, historical, and redemptive setting. Now, I've divided these 41 verses we're going to cover today into six sections for your outline and provided a closing question that will help us stay on track with the goal of seeing all of this in the book of Exodus from a new covenant perspective. Okay, so you're with me. Six sections, one question. That's our objective today. The first section is at the end of chapter 20, and in it, I want you to notice that God gave his people additional laws about worship to reinforce the first and second commandments. Here's what God says. So follow along in Exodus 20 and 22. Then the Lord told Moses, this is what you are to say to the Israelites. You have seen that I've spoken to you from heaven. Do not make gods of silver to rival me. Do not make gods of gold for yourselves. Again, God wants to be very clear on this no-idolatry business. The ancient Near Eastern people were prone to worship their gods, or so-called gods, in that way. And God knew it would become a major temptation for his people to create images cast in gold or silver and say they were worshiping Yahweh. Gold and silver might catch the eye, but God wants our ears to be the doorway to our heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving him first and foremost. The Lord continues in verse 24, Make an earthen altar for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, your flocks and herds. I will come to you and bless you in every place where I cause my name to be remembered. Now, these two types of sacrifices mentioned by Moses here include the burnt offering in which the animal was consumed entirely. This is what happens when barbecue goes wrong at your house, okay? And then there was the fellowship offering where barbecue goes right. You see, this is the first time a fellowship offering is mentioned in the Bible, and essentially it was where worshipers would have a meal celebrating the peaceful relationship they enjoy with God. The Israelites also learn from this verse that God is not constrained geographically to Mount Sinai. He will come to his people and bless them in every place where he causes his name to be remembered. Whether worship was in a simple earthen altar or prescribed for the tabernacle or the temple or later in the New Testament through the sending of his spirit, the worship of God would become a worldwide phenomenon. God is not bound by location. He goes on in verse 25. If you make a stone altar for me, do not build it out of cut stones. If you use your chisel on it, you will defile it. Do not go up to my altar on steps so that your nakedness is not exposed on it. 
Now, these additional laws help distinguish God's covenant community from the pagans that would have been all around them. The pagans in Canaan would build ornate altars with pyramid-style steps, and they would have, shall we just say, less than modest worship services. The principle is that God never wants an ornate environment surrounding his worship to become a distraction from the true heart of worship, which is him alone. So the words simple and pure come to mind. Simple and pure are the words. God wants simplicity, so our focus is on him, and God requires purity because he is holy. After revealing these additional laws about worship, perhaps as a sort of prologue to the book of the covenant, secondly, God gave Moses ordinances to set before his people. Now you students of the word following along in verse 21 can literally read the point from the outline in verse 1 of chapter 21. These are the ordinances that you are to set before them. Thus begins three long chapters of ordinances and rules. Some of them, if we're honest, make us a little nervous as we start to look ahead at first glance, don't they? Did I tell you I've never heard a sermon on this passage before? Philip Ryken, the commentator, says about these chapters, whether or not we find them interesting, the book of the covenant is important. It teaches us how to live for God day to day. God first gave Israel his moral law in the form of the Ten Commandments. Then he showed them how to apply his law in various life situations. This is where the book of the covenant comes in. It is an application of the Ten Commandments to the specific social context of Israel as a nation. For more clarity on how this all should be interpreted and applied differently from the Ten Commandments, you should go to the sermon I preached on October 31st of last year and scrub to five minutes and 15 seconds. I don't have time to repeat today the importance of the threefold division of the law. So go to October 31, five minutes and 15 seconds, so you can hear about the moral, the civic, and the ceremonial law and how those all apply differently. But in short, the book of the covenant does not give us a complete code of regulations for every situation in every culture. Its specific application was to Israel in their social, historical, and redemptive context. I said that three times, just making sure we're all clear there. But again, quoting Philip Ryken here, it does provide a set of cases to help us understand basic principles of divine justice. Each case consists of a crime and a punishment. And the punishments that God gave to Israel as a nation under his direct and divine rule, the theocratic rule of God, do not always apply today. Yet, they help us understand how to seek justice in an unjust world. So wisdom and a greater biblical perspective are required as we proceed. And I hope I've kind of laid that foundation for you. So let's proceed to something that a lot of you have already spotted as you're glancing ahead into chapter 21. And that is number three, God gave Israel ordinances about slaves. Now, due to our rightful abhorrence, of the evil system of slavery that took place in the United States, we are immediately at risk of eisegeting this text. What is that? Eisegesis is the interpretation of a text by reading into it one's own ideas. When we hear slavery, we think race-based chattel slavery, which is definitively not what is being spoken of by God here. So I want to read the text first, and then I want to highlight several of the differences for us. Beginning in verse 2 of chapter 21. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he is to serve for six years. Then in the seventh, he is to leave as a free man without paying anything. 
If he arrives alone, he is to leave alone. If he arrives with a wife, his wife is to leave with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children belong to her master and the man must leave alone. But if the slave declares, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I do not want to leave as a free man, his master is to bring him to the judges and then bring him to the door or doorpost. His master will pierce his ear with an awl and he will serve his master for life. When a man sells his daughter as a concubine, she is not to leave as the male slaves do. If she is displeasing to her master who chose her for himself, then he must let her be redeemed. He has no right to sell her to foreigners because he has acted treacherously toward her. Or if he chooses her for his son, he must deal with her according to the customary treatment of daughters. If he takes an additional wife, he must not reduce the food, clothing, or marital rights of the first wife. And if he does not do these three things for her, she may leave free of charge without any payment. Now, to get right down to the core differences between the enslavement of fellow Israelites vis-a-vis or versus the slavery we think of when we think of America in the past, the sort of slavery or servitude being described here was often voluntary, temporary, It was civil and was neither oppressive, nor was it race-based. This statement that I just made does not take into account other passages of the Old Testament that deal with the treatment of non-Hebrew slaves. We would consider those more in depth if we were studying, say, the book of Leviticus. But suffice it to say that whether the slave was a fellow Israelite or not, as we'll see in just a moment when we keep reading in Exodus, kidnapping a person to sell them into slavery and any form of physical abuse of slaves was strictly prohibited. You'll notice that this kind of indentured servitude provided an opportunity for somebody in debt or someone who owed restitution for a crime to get back on their feet. Glaringly absent From God's civic code for Israel is the state penitentiary system. No prisons. So, in other words, if you stole something and you couldn't repay the victim, which was to make restitution for the theft, you forfeited your rights to freedom until you could earn enough money to make restitution for the crime you committed. Also, the laws and the treatment of slaves shows a great deal of concern for women and children. Women who were sold to masters by a father who was totally impoverished. He was unable to provide for his daughter. Those women were to be treated honorably. The lady received protection in three ways that we just read. First, if it didn't work out, the family could always ransom her back and she could not be sold to foreigners. Secondly, if she was engaged to one of the sons of the master, she was to be treated like a daughter and have the full rights of a free citizen. Thirdly, if the engagement was ended, the man had the duty of providing food, clothing, and marital rights for the woman. One other way that the laws protected women and children might actually seem odd to you at first when you read about uh, a man coming in and then a woman coming into slavery and then they marry and have kids while they're enslaved. Then the man goes out and like the kids and the wife are still there. That seems a little odd, like you're separating families. But remember, this person was probably a criminal or very poor, at least, and could not provide. So the question was, would the man be able to earn enough of a living outside in his freedom? And if he was, he would be able to redeem or ransom his wife and children until such time that he could prove himself ready to care for and provide for a family. The women and children were being provided for in the master's house. But the final thing that we need to consider about this matter of slavery today is found in verses 5 and 6, where there is a stipulation that if a man loves his master, his wife and his children, he can choose to be a slave for life. Rather than looking for his freedom elsewhere, 
the servant had found a sort of freedom in his master's house. The master would have obviously been a just and loving master. Now, the slave would have to state that he wanted to be in his master's house for life plainly before judges in the community to make sure there was no funny business going on where a master is twisting a slave's arm and carrying on with slavery and lying about the slave's intention of actually being there, holding them hostage, so to speak. The servant would have to go to the judges and tell them plainly, I want to live in my master's house for the rest of my life. And then there was a ceremony that kind of formalized this whole experience. The slave would have his ear pierced with an awl on the doorpost of that master's house. And the hollowing out of the ear was a symbol of his listening and his obedience. And the location of the doorpost signified the home in which he would remain for life to serve. Now, for now, I want you just to tuck that little concept away in our minds as we continue. But in a few moments, I hope to show you how that obscure verse, those verses in Exodus 21, can help shape our understanding of Jesus and our own service to him. For now, look with me at verses 12 through 17, in which we see that God gave ordinances about capital crimes. God gave Israel ordinances about capital crimes. In verse 12, we continue reading in chapter 21, whoever strikes a person so that he dies must be put to death. But if he did not intend any harm, and yet God allowed it to happen, I will appoint a place for you where he may flee. If a person schemes and willfully acts against his neighbor to murder him, you must take him from my altar to be put to death. Whoever strikes his father or his mother must be put to death. Whoever kidnaps a person must be put to death. You see that there? Whether he sells him or the person is found in his possession. In verse 17, whoever curses his father or his mother must be put to death. Now we observe from this section of Exodus 21 as a whole, the value of every human life. Verse 12 reminds us of Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6, where scripture says in the covenant with Noah, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Now, once again, I found the commentary by Philip Ryken helpful. And by the way, that commentary is actually in our church library if you ever want to check it out. He said, quote, death for murder is one penalty that still applies today. God established this legal principle long before he ever gave laws to Moses, speaking of Genesis chapter 9. The murder of another human being is in essence an attack against God and his image. When someone commits such an assault on his divine sovereignty, that is the sovereignty over life and death, the perpetrator's life is forfeited, and nothing less than death can pay for murder. However, once the death penalty is carried out, it can never be undone. Well, that's an understatement, but it's true. This means that no one should ever be executed unless guilt is certain. God's law gave careful safeguards to protect the innocent from being put to death. For example, no one could be executed on the grounds of a single witness. This has implications for justice today. In the case of homicide, the Bible calls for the death penalty. However, in order for that penalty to be just, it must be administered justly, which means having fair trials that reach correct verdicts in a legal system that is free from bias or injustice. So he gives a key qualifying statement, and I'm just paraphrasing it slightly. Since it is hard to find perfect justice in an imperfect world, there are times when it is possible for good and godly Christians to oppose the death penalty, even though they agree with it as a matter of principle. I, th I think that that statement is very level-headed and even-handed. I see no New Testament removal 
of the concept of capital punishment. Paul says in Romans chapter 13, the government does not bear the sword in vain. Listen, that sword is not there to cut your steak for dinner for you. It's to execute judgment and capital punishment on evildoers. However, there may be times where in wisdom, Christians in America who by God's providence have some say over the laws of the land, may consider some measure of corruption they see in the justice system a reasonable enough cause for lobbying against this kind of irreversible punishment while still agreeing with the principle that those who commit premeditated murder should be put to death by proper governing authorities. Now, I bring up that concept of premeditated murder because it's obvious that God gave case law that allowed for different punishments in the event of an unintentional manslaughter. We saw that in verse 13, which also gives us a hint of the cities of refuge that would be provided in further law and spelled out more in detail. Additionally, at the end of verse 13, You can see that God alone is the one who is supposed to be sovereign and ultimately is sovereign over a person's life and the number of days they have. That the death of an individual is something that God allowed to happen even when it was an accident. Did you see that? If an accident occurs, that God allowed to happen. But if, on the other hand, somebody willfully and premeditated murdered someone, Not even caught clinging to the altar of God would be a way of preventing him from being executed for the crime. And that was seen in 1 Kings chapter 2 in the case of Joab. Now, before we move on to other laws, we have to also note the one last thing about these verses. And I bet you parents and you children picked up on these in verses 15 and 17. Now, to help us understand what's being said here in verse 15 and verse 17, when the Bible says, whoever strikes his father or mother, that word for strikes is a word that implies a kind of vicious attack to the point of attempted murder, basically. In other words, you see, although the person may not have actually ended up killing his parents, resulting in their death, The very act itself of attempted murder on one's parents is aggravated by a total disdain for the God-given authority that was placed in that child's life. When we were covering the Ten Commandments, we learned that if a child does not learn to respect their parents, they will not respect any authority. And generally speaking, they will not live peaceably in society and obey the other commandments that follow commandment number five. In other words, as Dwayne Garrett put it, gross disrespect for the dignity of a parent is so perverse that it ends up warping a person's soul. Someone who does this will have no respect for any other person's rights and will become a menace to society. So although we do not operate under the case law for ancient Israel, it is not repeated later in the New Testament that these cases should be the way they are and the punishment should be the same. We do learn a divine principle that God is seriously interested in children honoring their parents all the way into their aging years. That was what Jesus was talking about. You remember his confrontation with the Pharisees when he called them out on not caring for their parents financially under false pretenses that they were serving God? It doesn't work like that, Jesus said. They missed the point and they were guilty of a grave sin against God in weightier matters of the law, the unchanging moral law of the Ten Commandments. We need to keep moving along to the text in verses 18 through 27, where we see that God gave Israel ordinances about personal injuries. Read with me beginning in verse 18, where in general, throughout these verses, we see the punishment should fit the crime. Have you ever heard that before? The punishment should fit the crime. It's a biblical principle. Verse 18, when men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and the man does not die but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. Only he shall pay for the loss of his time. And shall have him thoroughly healed. 
You see, the law doesn't have to intervene in every single case. But when, for example, someone is injured in a fistfight to the point of missing work, well, they should be able to seek compensation for missed labor. Then we read in verse 20 to 21, and we see protection, that protection we talked about against beating slaves to the point of death. Verse 20 says, when a man strikes his male or female slave with a rod and the slave dies under his abuse, the owner must be punished. Now listen, the punishment for murder is already clear. Capital punishment. Now this protection for slaves did not exist in any other ancient culture. Verse 21. However, if the slave can stand up after a day or two, the owner should not be punished because he is his owner's property. Now here, the pragmatism of the law is what's in view. And it is simply this. If you injure your slave, you're not very smart. You're not smart at all because he's actually the one doing the labor you need done. So you're out of your own income when he can't work. In other words, this guy is being treated the same as the two guys in the fist fight in verses 18 through 19. If the guy misses being able to work for his own benefit in the fist fight, you pay him for it. In this case, the slave that you beat can't work for you and isn't earning you money, so you've gotten what you deserve. You lose money that he could have earned you. You say, wow, it sort of sounds like they could beat their slaves and get away with it. Not so fast. Generally speaking, the discipline administered to slaves was on the backside. Kind of like the kind of discipline you got when you didn't tuck your shirt in at Mechanicsville Elementary School growing up. But I'm going to skip around a little bit. I want you to skip ahead with me to verses 26 and 27. And note that striking a slave in the face could have resulted in you losing the slave entirely. Verse 26, when a man strikes the eye of his male or female slave and destroys it, he must let the slave go free in compensation for his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his male or female slave, he must let the slave go free in compensation for his tooth. Again, no protection like this existed in any ancient culture. Now, skip back with me to verse 22, where we read about the value of an unborn life and protection against pregnant women. Verse 22, when men get in a fight and hit a pregnant woman so that her children are born prematurely, but there is no injury, the one who hit her must be fined as the woman's husband demands from him, and he must pay according to judicial assessment. Now, the picture here is two guys fighting. Let's say they're out on the driveway in the fist fight or whatever, and pregnant mom comes over to help her husband out. And in the scuffle, the woman, the woman is struck and a baby is caused to be born prematurely. If the baby survives, then you will still be subject to some sort of fine as determined by the judge. But notice, as we keep reading in verse 23, if there is an injury, then you must give life for life. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, bruise for bruise, wound for wound. This is known as the lex talionis. It deserves a few things to be said about it. You've probably heard of the lex talionis before. First of all, there's no reason to think it should be taken literally. It was a poetic expression, generally speaking, of a principle. The punishment should fit the crime. But it also should be noted that this was intended, this lex talionis, as a deterrent to escalating conflicts, the kind of things that became family feuds or, or whole, you know, county feuds or whatever. Like, this is to de-escalate the conflict. In other words, you avoid seeking greater and greater revenge and one-upping someone by having a fair punishment administered. And then thirdly, That punishment to be administered was to be done through the proper authorities. In other words, this is not a rule for personal vengeance. It seems like that is maybe what it had become by the time Jesus was speaking and he told his disciples, you know what? You don't have to knock out someone else's tooth when they knock yours out. You can turn the other cheek. You can choose to forgive. And the matter is not intended to be taken in your own hands. It's a matter for the judgment of a court to decide whether the offender should pay you in return. I really like what Tony Morita said about this. He acknowledged that, yes, there are times for appealing to the authorities for just consequences, and we need civil authorities to carry out justice. But we as Christians, 
who have experienced mercy through the cross should be willing to suffer in order to show mercy in our own relationships. I think that's wise. Okay, so we're running out of time. Let me continue to read the last section in verse 28 through 36, and I really want to get to our question, okay? So verse 28 through 36, we see that God gave Israel ordinances about criminal negligence. Now, as we read this section, just observe three things. First, the value of human life again. Second, the option to show mercy that's written into the case law. And third, legal liability for personal injury matters to God. All right, take note of those as we read in verse 28 and 29. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox must be stoned and its meat may not be eaten, but the ox's owner is innocent. However... If the ox was in the habit of goring and its owner had been warned yet does not restrain it and it kills a man or a woman, the ox must be stoned and the owner also must be put to death. So in 21st century terms, if you have a ferocious dog, that dog is your responsibility. Then notice the option of mercy. See this in verse 30 for the wronged party. Verse 30 says, if, a, if instead a ransom is demanded of him, he can pay a redemption price for his life in the full amount demanded from him. The person that had lost a loved one in the ox-goring incident had the option to show mercy for the person's life and say, you know what? I could require your life because you were negligent over your ox, but instead I will allow you to pay a ransom and give mercy instead of receiving the death penalty and demanding it. Side note, praise God, our lives were ransomed from a death penalty we deserve. Reading on verse 20, 20, chapter 21, verse 31, if the ox gores a son or daughter, he's to be dealt with according to the same law. If the ox gores a male or female slave, he must give 30 shekels of silver to the slave's master, and the ox must be stoned. Again, just noting there is value for every human life. And did you notice that the price of the slave is the price that Judas was paid for in betraying Jesus? Verse 33, when a man uncovers a pit or digs a pit and does not cover it and an ox or a donkey falls into it, there's a big pit, obviously, the owner of the pit must give compensation. He must pay to its owner, but the dead animal will become his consolation prize. Verse 35, when a man's ox injures his neighbor's ox and it dies, they must sell the live ox and divide its proceeds. They must also divide the dead animal. If, however, it is known that the ox was in the habit of goring, yet its owner has not restrained it, he must compensate fully, ox for ox, and the dead animal will become his. Now, folks, again, we don't have time to go into every single thing. We have to move on. But just briefly, let me put it like this. In our day, the litigiousness of society, that's the lawsuit craziness of society, has led us to a place of skepticism. Even as Christians, I've heard some dismissiveness of the importance of looking out for what could go wrong to the best of our ability to keep our friends and neighbors safe. Let me put it another way. God wants us to avoid negligence that could hurt other people. Instead of Christians rolling their eyes at a law that would make you say, put up a fence around your pool. I don't even know if that's the law, but if it was, it should be. We should gladly take those types of precautions. Christians are quick to go to the New Testament and just say, you know what? Love is the fulfillment of the law. We are all happy to say that. Fulfillment of what law? Have you ever heard a passage preached from this, the law that's being fulfilled? What does love of neighbor look like? It looks like if you don't want somebody to get hurt at your house by the death trap on your property, fix it so nobody else does. That's what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, so we've made it to the big question. What about this makes this sermon uniquely Christian? First of all, as we've just noted, there are divine principles of justice here that matter in everyday life. How much of the news is filled with examples just like this case law? Someone's dog that has been known to be vicious before mauled a child. A pregnant woman dies in a drunk driving accident. 
A girl is kidnapped and sold into sex slavery. On and on the headlines would go, and the Bible is not silent about these things. But you could hear about these same principles of divine justice in a synagogue, couldn't you? I had you turn to Hebrews chapter 10, way back when this message began. I would like to read it for you now and make some brief commentary. I'm going to read from verses 5 through 7. The writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, as he, that is Jesus, was coming into the world, he said, You did not desire sacrifice and offering, but you prepared a body for me. Interesting parallel the author of Hebrews chooses. You did not delight in, a, in whole burnt offerings and sin offerings. Then I said, See, it is written about me in the scroll, I have come to do your will, O God. The author of Hebrews is teaching us that Jesus, when he came into the world at his incarnation, said something. And that something that he said, according to the cross-references in our Bibles, is in Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, which we read earlier. Now, when you go and reread Psalm chapter 40 and verse 6, you see what David said. David said, you do not delight in sacrifice and offering. You open my ears to listen. You do not ask for a whole burnt offering or a sin offering. But when we read verse 6 in the Bible reading at the beginning, and when we look a little closer at the footnote in our Bibles, we see literally verse 6, the second, or the second line should be, you hollow out ears for me. Now, unless we had ever gone to study Exodus 21, you may not have known about the way a servant could choose to have his ears pierced or hollowed out with an awl on the doorpost. But with that insight, we can come to understand that Jesus was speaking this psalm in his incarnation as a servant whose ear had been metaphorically hollowed out as a slave to do the will of God. Listen to how the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, put it. Jesus Christ is here, in all probability, speaking of himself as being forever, for our sakes, the willing servant of God. Let's dwell on this for a moment, he says. Ages long ago, before the things which are seen had begun to exist, Jesus had entered into covenant with his Father that he would become the servant of servants for our sakes. All through the long ages, he never went back on his word. Though the Savior knew the price for pardon was his blood, his pity never withdrew, for his ear had been pierced. He had become, for our sakes, the lifelong servant of God. He loved his spouse. Did you catch that in Exodus 21? If he loves his bride? He loved his spouse, the church. He loved his dear sons, his children, whom he foresaw when he looked through the future ages. And he would not go out free. Our debts, our insolvency, had made us slaves. And Christ became a servant in our place. When he came to Bethlehem's manger, then it was that his ear was pierced indeed. For the author of Hebrews quotes as a parallel expression to the one in the Psalms for having his ear pierced, a body you have prepared for me. What does it mean to be the slave and enter as a servant for God into the world? It means to be incarnate. He was bound to God's service when he was found in the fashion as a man. For then he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. When he came to the waters of baptism at the Jordan and said, thus it is necessary to fulfill all righteousness, then did he, as it were, go before the judges and plainly say for all to hear that he loved the master whom he was bound to serve. He loved his spouse, the church, and he loved her little ones and would for their sake be the servant forever. When he stood foot to foot with Satan in the wilderness, the arch fiend offered to him all the kingdoms of this world. And why did he not accept them? 
because he preferred a cross to a crown, for his ear was bored. Afterwards, the people, in the height of his popularity, offered him a crown, but he hid himself away from them. And why? Because he came to suffer, not to reign. His ear was hollowed out for redemption's work, and he was straightened until he had accomplished it. In the garden, we sang it this morning in the first song, when the bloody sweat fell from his face, and he said, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Why did he not put away the cup? If it had pleased him, he could have called and appealed for 12 legions of angels, and they would have come to the rescue. Why did he not summon the celestial bodyguard? Was it because he had, was it not because he had wholly surrendered himself to service for our salvation? Before his judges, Pilate and the high priest, he might have saved himself. Why did he not? One word when he was before Pilate, would have broken the spell of prophecy. But why, like a sheep before his shearers, was he silent? Why did he give his back to the smiters and his cheeks to those who had plucked off his hair? Why did he condescend to die and actually upon the cross pour out his heart's blood? It was all because he had undertaken for us and would go through. His ear was bored. He could not and he would not leave his dearly beloved church his bride. Now, I could be totally wrong here. I I admit this. This is me. Totally wrong. But I'm willing to go on a limb with some biblical warrant to say that one reason God did not explicitly condemn the idea of slavery. Again, don't hear race-based, man-stealing, chattel slavery, which God clearly hates. But at least a reason God allows for this kind of voluntary, lifelong servitude is because it pictures two things. One, there is coming a servant into the world who will voluntarily submit himself entirely to the master because he knows the father loves him. And so doing his will is the desire of that servant's heart. And two, there is such a thing as a master worth dedicating one's entire life to. Rare as it may be, it clearly existed even in the fallen state of the Israelite community. How much more true is it then of service to the sinless Savior? Listen to me very clearly. Lifelong devotion to the master is not outside the realm of thinking for a Christian. It is precisely what it means to be a Christian. Well, you could run free if you wanted to, but where else would you go? The world? Your own flesh? You've tried those before. The Bible says you were a slave to them before. Paul teaches in Romans that the fruit of your slavery was death. You were enslaved. You were enslaved to the flesh and the world. And the fruit of that was death. But when you become slaves of God, the fruit you get is sanctification. And its end or purpose is eternal life. That kind of slavery to God is biblical. Just read Romans 6. Read Romans 1 for that matter where Paul introduces himself. Paul a slave of Christ Jesus. I want you to hear me clearly. The only slaves God has are lifelong, willing servants. There's a paradoxical freedom found in slavery to God. Freedom is found in a hollowed out ear to listen to and obey his will which leads to a life of flourishing. So I implore you today, have your ear pierced by the remembrance of his cross of Calvary. Have your ear pierced today by the thought that there's nowhere else you would rather turn in your present distress. And have your ear pierced by the thought of future glory that awaits you if you remain faithful to the master you know loves you and cares for you and provides your every need. Genuine Christians have their ears hollowed out 
because we are being conformed to the image and likeness of Jesus Christ, whose ear was hollowed out to. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, the thought is an overwhelming one of the condescension of our Savior Jesus Christ. He had it all. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Father, we thank you for our servant and our master. I pray that today there will be someone here today that would recognize they are bound as slaves to sin right now. And they would repent of their sins and put their trust in Jesus. In his death on the cross for their sins and his resurrection from the grave for their justification. I pray, Lord, that someone here would commit their life to be your servant, to be your slave, knowing that when we become slaves of righteousness, as Paul says, the fruit we get is sanctification. Lord, you transform us into your likeness. You give us a life of joy, peace, and flourishing not without suffering in this world, but with the promise of eternal life. Father, the freedom we find when we submit ourselves to the piercing of our own ears is eternal life. Forever having our needs met by you and forever being conformed into the image of our servant and master, Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.